May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Over the last few months, we have been in a sermon series called Summer in the Psalms. Hopefully you've been here a few of those Sundays to catch some of those. Well, I just as easily could have called this sermon series Summer Counseling Sessions in the Psalms because we've been looking into the heights and the depths of human emotion. We began by looking at lament, that place where we can go and cry out to the Lord when things are painful. It's the best thing that we can do with our pain. And then we took three Sundays and we looked at joy. And we saw how joy is different than happiness. Happiness depends on our happenings, what happens to us, but joy is anchored in something much deeper. And yet there is something that we can do in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to cultivate, to construct, to support the joy in our lives. So through this summer, the the Psalms have been our wise counselor, teaching us how to deal well with pain, showing us how to pursue joy. And this morning, I want to ask our wise counselor another question. How do we deal with fear and anxiety? How do we deal with fear and anxiety? Because these are universal human experiences. No one is exempt from these threats. Sometimes fear and anxiety are are mild and momentary. Other times they're intense and persistent and really can take over our lives and relationships. We all have different ways of dealing with it. Depending on our personality, depending on the particular threat that we're facing, we will approach it in different ways. Experts describe how humans and animals respond to a threat with fight, flight, or freeze. Some of us are more prone to be fighters. We see a threat coming, whether it's real or or perceived, and we want to attack it. Anyone relate to that? That can look like uh, having a controlling personality. I just want to get on top of this. I just want to preempt this. I just want to control it. It can look like micromanagement at work or in marriage or with kids or in other relationships. You just want to make sure everything is is tight-knit and controlled, and that's your way to deal with fear and anxiety. In relationships, the, the fighters are fighters, They want to win the argument. They can be very aggressive. Then you have the people that are more prone towards flight. When stress comes, they want to run away. We don't want to deal with the problems. We just want to escape. Sometimes we escape into uh, an addiction. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's sexual fantasy, consumer therapy, something else. But we we just want to get away from it, hoping that if we do, maybe the problems will go away on their own. In relationships, uh, flight people tend to be conflict avoiders, which really turns out to be passive-aggressive, right? Because you can't really just avoid your conflicts. It's going to do something in your soul. So some of us tend towards fight. Some of us tend towards flight. But sometimes we also just freeze. We get so overwhelmed by something that we neither attack nor run away. We just stand still. We're like the possum playing dead or the deer in the headlights. We, we don't move. And even as the threat moves on, sometimes we're still stuck in that place 
of paralysis. So this morning, I I want you to bring to your mind, even if it's a little scary, uh, the the most recent or the most intense, even if you need to go back a few years, um, experience that you've had of fear and anxiety. Maybe you're actually right in the middle of that experience this morning. So take that experience and ask yourself, how did I respond to it? How am I responding to it if you're in the middle of it? Where did I go when I felt threatened? Whether that was a real or perceived threat. Was it fight? Was it flight? Was it freeze? Was it some combination of all three? As you're thinking about that, uh, take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is pretty well known. You may have recognized some of its words as Lawrence read it for us. It begins with these very comforting words. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then later, towards the end of the psalm, we hear this oft-repeated command, be still and know that I am God. Has anyone heard that before? Psalm 46 is going to be our counselor this morning. So get comfortable, put your feet up, You can lounge today if you need to. And as I open up this psalm, I want you to take an experience you've had of fear and anxiety and let this psalm speak into it. So let's pretend that you've you've shared for a few minutes. You've gone on about your particular fear and anxiety. You've you've shared it with Psalm 46, and he's listened empathetically. He's, He's nodded wisely a few times. He's maybe passed you a couple of tissues, and now it's his turn to respond and to share counsel and to speak into that anxiety and fear. The main thing that Psalm 46 is going to offer us is a picture of God that's immensely helpful when we feel threatened. And he describes this picture three times. It's the main theme of the psalm. Look again at verse one and then verse seven and 11. Verse one, God is our refuge, our strength, a very present help in trouble. And then verse seven and 11 repeat the same refrain. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Last year, I was in Israel. I drove way up to the very north of the country to Mount Hermon. The reason I went up there was because uh, many scholars believe that's where the transfiguration of Jesus took place. Hermon is actually high enough to host Israel's only ski resort. I saw it with my own eyes. I took the chairlift up the mountain. Uh, There was no snow in that area. I could see some off in the distance. It was quite exhilarating. It was made even more exciting by the Israeli soldiers who were there guarding the border with Syria and Lebanon. But they were nice, and they let me take a picture with them. There they are, the friendly Israeli soldiers, standing post. Along the way down, I had a chance to visit a place called Nimrod's Fortress. I almost skipped this place because it's not a biblical site and I was really trying to focus on on following the path of Jesus and and see places associated with his life. But I decided uh, to make a visit and I'm so glad that I did. Put up the next picture. This fortress dates back to the Crusader era in the 13th century. It's a wonderful fortress. It's built on the spine of a ridge. It's surrounded by these deep canyons with a commanding view of the valley below. Put up another one. 
I can see why they built a fortress here because it really does seem like a strategic location. And I spent some time just walking around this impressive stronghold and I understood why the ancient people compared God to a fortress. I think there's one more. I felt safe in that place. I felt protected. I I had a sense that the threats around me, the anxieties that sometimes dominate my life couldn't reach me as long as I dwelled in the safety of God's presence. Just leave that one up there, Doyle. I felt his peace in this embodied way as I walked around the fortress. And that's the picture of God that Psalm 46 offers us. He is our fortress He is our safe place. He is our refuge. He's the one we run to when something threatens us. This psalm is what inspired Martin Luther to pen the words of that wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And we know this about God, don't we? I mean, we we have this idea that we can run to God in in times of trouble. We've probably heard the verses, we've sang the songs, but we actually don't do it as often as we should. I mean, fear and anxiety are are constants in our life. It's just little experiences, big experiences, we're facing them a lot. And our temptation, our natural instinct is to take care of ourselves, to do something about it with fight, flight, or freeze, or some combination. The people of God back then, they, they had very similar temptations that we do. They were tempted to run to something or to someone other than God for help and protection. They had their own versions of fight, flight, or freeze. Sometimes they ran to ill-fated political alliances. Sometimes they had man-made idols that they said, this will take care of us. Other times they ran to the high places of false worship. Read the Old Testament. Story after story of the people of God running to something other than God. And you had God there all along saying, just run to me. Just come inside the safety of my presence. I'm the only true source. I'm the only place you're going to find protection and peace. And so this is our counsel from Psalm 46. In times of fear and anxiety, don't do fight, flight, or freeze. Do fortress. Run to God. He is there for you. But Psalm 46 says more. Um, It's going to take this imagery, this idea, it's pretty simple, and it's going to press it down into our souls so that it can be there for us when we face the scary times. There are three stanzas in the psalm, and you may see that in your Bible, the way it's broken out into three paragraphs. Each stanza offers us a description of how God as fortress delivers us from the threats that we face. And so I want to take a look at at each description in each stanza. The first stanza, verses 2 and 3, shows us courage in the chaos, Courage in the chaos. The psalmist writes, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So the psalmist is describing stable things descending into chaos. Stability is represented by the earth and the mountains. 
Um, I got to live in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia for three years, and one of the beautiful features of that city is just right there are these coastal mountains, and you see them. You're going to work, you're whatever, taking a walk, there's just, they're there. Got to visit Colorado Springs over the summer. Same thing. There's just mountains there in the backdrop of the city. And there's something I love about that because there's just this constant, strong presence there. Whatever you're doing, whatever state you're in, there they are. That's the mountains. Those things that we can count on that we assume will always be there. And then you have the sea. And that's the chaos of life. Now we are beach people. We live in the Carolinas. We like to go to the beach, but the Jews were not a seafaring people. And so much of the time when water shows up in their literature, it represents something threatening. And even see how he describes the waters, the sea here. It's not a pleasant walk on the beach. It's roaring, foaming, and swelling. And then notice the movement. What happens? The earth gives way. The solid mountain slips into the chaotic sea. Things are falling apart for this person, for the people of God. Things that were counted on for stability and protection and survival are no more. Over the last year in particular, and many years before that, we have watched some ethical norms regarding sexuality, gender, and marriage change drastically the popular opinion has shifted rapidly and the courts soon followed suit and overturned centuries of understanding of what was proper and right and natural. Whatever you believe about the policy and the politics of these things, we can all agree that has been a massive change. A mountain is slipping into the heart of the sea. Over the last year or two, we've been confronted with threats to our security. Attacks in San Bernardino, Orlando, Paris, Brussels, Nice, and many other places. I actually looked up a list. I was trying to remember the various attacks, and I was overwhelmed by how many of them there were, these various terrorist attacks. The vast majority were in faraway places, mostly Muslim countries. And those, for whatever reason, those don't bother us as much in our psyche, but when it comes to Europe or God forbid, comes to our shores, it's too close to home, and it rattles us. We also have personal experiences. We could go around and just swap stories of, of something stable in our life descending into chaos. A job that you thought you were going to have, but you've changed your mind. It didn't work out. They've changed their mind about you. Now it feels uncertain. A marriage that you thought was stable that now is experiencing some strife. A clean bill of health that you had for many years all of a sudden interrupted by the concerning news of a doctor. A friend or family member who was present in your life becoming absent for some reason. A child who lived under your roof, who you raised, who you spent so much of your time and energy and now they are moving on. It's a good thing, but it's still a massive change. A parent that you once cared for you that now you're in that very strange turning of the tides where you care for them. Where are the crumbling mountains in your life? We all have them. And how do you respond when you experience something slipping into the sea? Where do you run? 
Listen again to how the psalmist addresses these things. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Important thing to note here, the threats are real. He's not making them up. Same thing in our gospel reading. The, uh, the fishermen are out on the sea. They're used to the sea and the waves pick up and the wind picks up and their boat's filling. They're not making this up. The threats are real and we don't have to minimize the threats. But somehow the psalmist has this courage to face the chaos. He says, we will not fear even though these really scary things are taking place. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's not the absence of looking square on in these really threatening things. Rather, it's continuing to walk into them. It's that resolve that says we will face our fears. And so where does he get his courage in the midst of these things happening? It's all hinges on the word, therefore. You have to ask what it's there for. It's in verse two. It refers back to verse one where we started. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So how do we have the courage in the chaos? By running to God as the fortress, as a refuge. If we run to any other source, if we expect government to, to fix the problems, if we think more walls or more armies are going to give us more security, if we think we can just outperform ourselves in these jobs to, to make it more secure or save enough money, we're, we're fooling ourselves and we're going to be left vulnerable. But if we run to God as fortress, we can join the psalmist and say, therefore, we will not fear. I encourage you to memorize verse one and two. It's not very long. And every time you face a threat, small or large, say this verse and personalize the end of it for yourself. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though fill in the blank, though the doctor, though the, the school changing, though whatever it is, name your threat. God is your source of strength. The second stanza, verses four through six, give us another description of what it's like to have God as our fortress. And here he shows us an immovable meeting place. An immovable meeting place. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Focus in on verse five. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Now who is she? The psalmist is speaking of Jerusalem, the city of God, often called Zion in scripture. He's probably imagining the actual physical city, but Jerusalem Throughout the scriptures, we heard it in Hebrews, it also symbolizes something greater. It symbolizes the people of God, and particularly God dwelling with his people. So he did dwell in Jerusalem and its temple, but that was a, an expression of something larger that was going on and that was going to happen in a more full way of God being with his people. Look back at verses 7 and 11. The psalmist calls God fortress, but he also says the Lord of hosts is with us. The fortress is a fortress 
because God dwells there. It's not the walls. It's not the guards. It's God's presence that makes the fortress a refuge and a place of peace. It's that experience of being near him that keeps us safe and protects us. Notice some contrast between the first stanza and the second. In verse 2, first stanza, the psalmist has described this scary experience of mountains being moved into the sea. Actually, in verse 6, he describes the kingdoms of the world tottering. Same word, moving. But then verse 5, we're told that God's presence in the midst of her, she will not be moved. It's the same word again. He's intentionally contrasting those things which are movable with those that are immovable. Nations and nature may shift and quake, but God's presence in his people is a constant. It will not be shaken. Notice another contrast. Verses two and three, first stanza, we meet the unsettling picture of a watery chaos. But in verse four, something has changed. We have water again, but it's different. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The water here is clearly something good. It's something desirable, something soothing. Scholars have noted that these are waters of blessing. And it brings to mind um, prophecies in Ezekiel as well as in Revelation, in the end, where you have the, the water of the river of life flowing through the city out from the throne of God. You see, in the presence of God, in the fortress, even the chaotic things are somehow transformed into blessing, into nourishment. Something that threatens to undo us when it's brought into the fortress becomes something to restore us. The health trial becomes a powerful season of knowing God's love. The marriage strife changes and becomes this depth of intimacy and confidence. The the job uncertainty leads to a clearer sense of God's call on your life. On our own, when we face threats, we can't deal with them, let alone transform them into something good. But in the immovable meeting place of God, chaotic things can become blessing and new life. So with God as fortress, we have courage in the chaos and we have the immovable meeting place. Third and finally, in the last stanza, verses eight through 10, we have a restful rebuke. A restful rebuke. This is where we meet the familiar command, be still and know that I am God. And Christians often use this command as an encouragement towards quiet contemplation. Maybe it's a, uh, something that gives us that inspiration we need to, to have our quiet time. Just be still and know that I am God. It's a good thing to do, but in this context, the verse really means something a little different than how we sometimes use it. To get a sense of what's going on, uh, we need to go to verses 8 and 9 and get some context. There we have another command. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. What's going on there? What's that language about? It shows up in other places in the Old Testament. It is kingdom establishing language. God is bringing his kingdom on earth and as he does so, he makes wars to cease. He gets rid of the weapons of war. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots. 
You may be familiar, at Christmas time, we, we read from Isaiah 9. And it has a very similar uh, kingdom language when it's talking about Jesus and his birth and the kingdom that will come as a result. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? For us, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God's establishing his kingdom. That's what's going on in those two verses. He's bringing about shalom. But the process of bringing about peace can be quite violent. Not because God is bent on violence, but because people resist God. In the end, we will all be conquered by God and by Christ. Either willingly with joy or unwillingly with fear. Every human being, every nation will bend their knee to Christ and his kingdom. So in verses eight and nine, the psalmist is saying to us, the people of God, look what God is doing. Look here, he, he's bringing his kingdom on earth. His ultimate goal is peace, but in the process, if people resist his sovereignty, they will be conquered. Resistance is futile. Now in the great surprise of history, how does God finally overcome? How does he conquer the world? How does he establish his kingdom? He takes the violence into himself, onto himself, on the cross. The lamb who was slain becomes the lion who overcomes and sits on the throne. The command of Psalm 46 is come and see. Come and watch God be God. Watch him overcome his enemies including us, who were once his enemies. Watch him do it, though, not with a sword, but with a cross. And so now we come to verse 10, with some of that context of we're, we're watching God be God, but we also need to look at those words, be still. It's a particular word, it's a command. It's used a lot in the Old Testament. It's really not translated be still, except for this one place. It can mean let it go. It can mean relax, cease striving, or just stop. My favorite use of the word came up in 1 Samuel, where Samuel the prophet confronts King Saul. King Saul was supposed to, to wipe out everything. He was supposed to kill all the sheep. Uh, he doesn't. Uh, he thinks he has good reasons. He comes back and he meets Samuel, and Samuel says, what is this bleating of sheep I hear in my ear? You obviously didn't follow God's commands. And then Saul begins to justify himself, and he begins to explain well, why he did that and why he thinks he was right. And Samuel just says, stop. Be still. Same word. And so we have this particular nuance of the translation. We also need to consider to whom is this command spoken? We always think when we read just that verse that it's spoken to us and, and we're supposed to be still and, and just quiet ourselves. Again, not a bad thing to do, but in the context, it may actually be that he's addressing not really the people of God, but the nations who are resisting his kingdom. When you read 8 and 9 and 10 together, this actually fits the context pretty well. 
Those who are making war, those who are using these weapons of violence, God is saying to them, stop resisting, stop fighting, put down your weapons, know that I am God. And then it continues in verse 10, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Translation, resistance is futile. You're not gonna stop my kingdom. You can submit to it willingly and enjoy its blessing or you can resist and be destroyed, but you will not stop it. And so I think the be still is like a plea from God to stop resisting, put down the weapons, and submit to the kingdom that is coming. And I do think it is spoken in this, in this way to these people who are resisting, to the enemies of God. But here's the big catch. The people of God can sometimes resist the kingdom, can we not? And so I think God will say to us as well, be still, stop resisting me. Know that I am God and you are not. Peter received this kind of rebuke from Jesus. Matthew 16, Jesus asked this very key question. It's, it's a big moment in the Gospels. Um, interestingly enough, he's taken them way up to the north just down the road from Nimrod's fortress. He's in the vicinity of Caesarea Philippi. The, the transfiguration happens in this area. And he says to them, who do the people say that I am? And they give some answers. And then he puts it to them and says, who do you say that I am? And in this shining moment, Peter gets the right answer. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the music swells. And Jesus gives him this great affirmation and says, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And Catholics understand that one way. Protestants, well, whatever it means, it's a big moment for Peter. And then Jesus begins to teach. And he says, I am the Christ. I am the son of the living God. And now let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you what it means for me to be God. I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna die. And I'm gonna be raised again after three days. And what does Peter do? takes the Lord of life aside to rebuke him. Not a very good idea. <laughs> and what does he get instead? The harshest rebuke recorded in scripture. The key to the church, the rock, two verses later is called Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Be still, Peter. Let it go, buddy. You don't know what you're talking about. Stop. Know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the nations. And I will be exalted in the way that I'm going to be exalted, which is on a cross, lifted up for all the world to see. And my enemies will put a sign up there. And they'll think they're doing it for whatever reason. Maybe it's a joke. Maybe it's a mockery. But it actually is the truth. This is the king of the Jews. Because that cross is the sign of, of my kingdom. It's what it means to be God. I call this a restful rebuke. Why? Because it's only in submission to the will of God that we know rest. It's only when we pray those oft-repeated lines of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, that we actually experience a shalom like we've never known when we tried to do it on our own. 
It's only when we lay down our attempts to play God in our own lives in little and big ways that we see that he is God and we are not. And he's going to be God in a very different way than we thought. I've had some prayer experiences lately where I'm literally saying to God, could you just give me what I want? Like, come on, I, I think these things are good. Just, just make this go better. And, and God's saying no. He's going to be God in a different way than we think he will. To resist that is going to exhaust us. To receive the rebuke, be still, know that I am God, leads to rest. It leads to peace. So how do you respond to threats in your life? How do you deal with fear and anxiety? Though it feels natural, though it's an impulse, there is actually something better than fight, flight, or freeze. There is fortress. There is God, our refuge, our protection, safety, and peace. As we embrace him as that fortress, we discover three things. First, an unnatural courage in the chaos. doesn't even make sense to us, but we'll feel that courage. Second, we'll have this immovable, constant meeting place. The world may shift around us, but the presence of God with us, Emmanuel, is stable. He is in the midst of us. And third, we have this restful rebuke. From the safety of the fortress in the presence of God, we can watch God be God. We can see him establish his kingdom and lay down our attempts at control. Therein we find rest. Counseling session finished. Let's pray.